the Work Awards for Effectiveness are back for 2024, and they are bigger than ever. We are looking for campaigns that celebrate strategic brilliance and effective impact across 12 categories and five new regional shows, including Latin America. The great news is that you just need to enter once for the chance to win in your region and be in line for the Global Grand Prix, which will be announced during Cannes Lions Week. I'm Mauro Rodriguez, Works Marketing Director, and I'm so excited that we are launching our first ever Latin America Awards. It's a brilliant opportunity to shine a light on the unique and amazing work I know Latin American brands and agencies are creating. We're open for entries now. Early bear deadline is the 12th of December and final deadline is 6th of February. For more info on the fees and regions covered, head over to work.com to download your entry pack now. Strategic Brilliance, Effective Impact is the awards show you've been waiting for. Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name is Anna Hamill and I'm Senior Editor for Brands at Walk. Today you're listening to CMO Conversations, an interview mini-series as part of the Walk Marketers Toolkit, where we explore some of the industry's defining issues in discussion with the world's most influential marketers. The Marketers Toolkit is now available to read on walk.com. Subscribers can access all of the relevant data from the survey and dive deep into the trends. You don't want to miss it. In today's episode, Andrea Brimmer, who is Chief Marketing Officer at Ally Financial, is joining us. Ally is a US-based bank making waves in gender equity and sponsorship. We also dive into the politicization of brands, as well as the opportunities for financial services with artificial intelligence and much, much more about marketing strategy. Enjoy the conversation. Andrea, welcome to the Walk podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you today. Thanks for inviting me. And we're excited to have you and get really stuck into some of these amazing topics. So perhaps it would be best if you could uh, briefly introduce yourself and the amazing brand that you're working on and some of the teams and initiatives that you're overseeing within your role as CMO. Yeah. So my name is Andrea Brimmer. I'm the Chief Marketing and PR Officer at Ally Financial. Uh, It's a great brand, digital financial services, no brick and mortar. We like to call it the original disruptor in the financial services category. We launched in the midst of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression and really came in with this idea that the world didn't need another bank, but it needed a better bank. And that's what we've really tried to create. And our um, initiatives are really all focused around being a brand that matters and doing things that move people from apathy to emotion about their money. Because if you think about it, it's the most important asset in our life. And we work really hard for it. So you should have a brand that cares about it as much as you do. And in the current economic environment, people are thinking about their money and how far it goes a lot more. And the Marketers Toolkit survey data uh, that we've just finished here at Walk uh, of 1,700 marketers found that 95% Uh, of marketing professionals expected their brands to be impacted by the economic upheaval that we're having. As a financial services brand, how are you navigating the current economic challenges within the U.S. particularly? Yeah, I mean, look, the market is really choppy. Uh, The economy is very confusing. On one hand, you see a lot of denigration of the economy, whether it's layoffs, whether it's budget tightening, uh, 
a ton of regulation that's coming in, particularly post the fallout of Silicon Valley Bank and and some of what occurred around that. On the other hand, you're seeing an economy that continues to boom in the U.S. The jobs report a couple of weeks ago was up again. The economy continues to grow despite the raising uh, rate environment. So it's a little bit confounding. And I think most companies are trying to understand and navigate it. Consumer sentiment is definitely down. But people with money are still spending, and they're spending in really significant ways. So for us, I think it's about putting out the right messages at the right time, uh, really trying to be smart in terms of the type of content that we're putting out to continue to educate and advise our clients and our customers about what's happening in the marketplace, how they should be thinking about the rate environment, how they should be thinking about protecting their money, but really um, not doing anything that is decidedly different in terms of our general approach to market right now. I think customers tend to take comfort in stability, and so we're just trying to stay stay stable. So how does the impact of the SVB failure that you mentioned, how does that, I guess, you know, distrust contagion almost um, impact how you think about your brand and brand trust? Is, is there, when a bank fails like that, is that something that then casts a shadow over the rest of the financial services sector or in particular a smaller uh, brand like yours? You know, absolutely. I'd say that um, what we saw in all of the data is that post SVB failure and a couple of the other banks that, that went down with SVB, that trust in general in the financial services category fell sharply. What we saw was ours rebounded more quickly than other brands and actually has grown. And I think that a lot of that has to do with uh, stability. A lot of it has to do with messages. A lot of the content that we put out was around FDIC insurance. That was a big part of Uh, I think what people were seeking in terms of really understanding FDIC insurance, reinforcing that over 90% of our deposits were insured, which is a really strong number. So I think it's all about being very calculated in the messaging and the things that you do. And we were actually a beneficiary of growth post that fallout, both in terms of trust, but also in terms of new customers and deposit growth. You mentioned that you launched in the middle of um, a financial crisis. What did you learn about building brand trust through that time that you've been able to apply now as we go through this ongoing economic upheaval? You know, I think for us, what was really interesting at that time, so if you think about it, it was during the banking and financial crisis in 2006, 2007, that we actually built this company. And a lot of people said to us, why are you launching a bank in the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression? And Our mantra and and really our rallying cry was this idea that there were a number of customer pain points that needed to be solved for. And people were very apathetic about the experience that they had in financial services. And we felt like, let's just think as people. Let's not think as marketers. Let's not think as bankers. Let's think about people, about everything that we don't like about financial services and solve for those pain points. And that really has carried us forward. I mean, You fast forward 15 years later, we're a top 25 bank. We've got over $140 billion in retail deposits, more than 12 million customers. And I think we applied a lot of the same principles this year during the, you know, during some of the banking failure as we, as we always have put the customer at the center of everything you do, reinforce the values and 
the aspects of the company that are what make Ally a true ally and don't waver from what that original mission was. And I think we're big believers in deeds, not words. I think our deeds have demonstrated over and over again that you can take us at our word. In this kind of environment, how do you keep an eye on long-term growth while also navigating that constant upheaval? You mentioned some of those values which have carried you through all sorts of things over the last few years and also that consumer motivations uh, with regards to brand trust are relatively similar from A to B. But how consumers interact with their bank and interact with financial services has changed a lot with regards to mobile. How are you really thinking about evolving those consumer insights to stay relevant over time? Well, look, I think a couple of things. One, we play the long game, not the short game. I think the macroeconomic environment is a point in time. Uh, The economy in the United States goes through all kinds of cycles, and this just happens to be a bit of a rough patch. We'll come out of it. Um, So you have to think long term. Secondly, because we are a digital financial services company, we, we were already there a long time ago in terms of the way that consumers would interact with financial brands. So you think about it, when we launched 15 years ago, a digital bank, we launched the same year that Apple launched the smartphone. So we took this huge bet that everybody was going to be banking in the palm of their hand. And now it's just about continuing to stay leading edge, whether it's AI, whether it's new technologies, whether it's the types of uh, experience that you build for the customer. Uh, we have things that we've built in our in our lab that we call TM Studios. It's a rapid innovation lab that allows us to stay in front of where the consumer is moving. I think it's leaning into that spirit of innovation that we've had since the beginning, which keeps us exceptionally relevant. And it builds up transparency, which goes back to that brand trust. I think one of the challenges in financial services is that, you know, many people feel as though they don't see exactly how their money operates within their bank or they don't have visibility over all of it to gain control of it. That sounds like a really interesting way of tackling that challenge. Yeah. You know, we've always said, you know, we're we're a for-profit entity. We make money with you, not off you. That's always been a big concept at Ally. It's been why we have very few fees. It's why we were the first bank to eliminate overdraft fees, which disproportionately affect those that can afford them the least. Um, And it's why we create things like savings buckets or our new debt plan that actually allows you to manage your debt, regardless of whether or not you're an Ally customer or not. It's a free tool that non-customers can use. So it's really all about You know, we talk a lot about this concept of being a usage brand. As a digital bank, how can you create usage even if you're not a customer of Ally? And everything that we think about constructing goes towards that idea of really becoming a full usage brand and putting the right tools in people's hands so that they can manage their most important asset in their life. I want to jump now into sponsorship because I know this is something that's a real passion point for you and for your brand. Uh, Let's jump into a little bit of the marketer's toolkit data here. So our survey showed that half of marketing executives from North America agreed that the debate around popular sports and socio-political issues, and that could be things like human rights or racial discrimination, that that debate is intensifying. As a brand heavily involved in sports, what's your view on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you let's just point to the U.S. Women's National Team as a great example of that. The soccer they team. Took on, the soccer team. They took on a huge um, pay equity uh, fight, and um, they were very bold about it. They were very insistent on the fact that the, the women's team has had incredible success over a sustained period of time. They weren't making what their male counterparts were making, and and they took that on. And um, and they took a lot of gaff for it, right? I think that you saw in the last World Cup, there was a, a far uh, right, I, I think, wing of people that really came out and went after the team very, very hard. And particularly Megan Rapino, who I think was a very vocal voice in all of that. And so, you know, I think athletes, particularly female athletes, have very strong societal views have had to be a voice where there isn't reason oftentimes and are willing to put up with the consequences of that because it is intrinsically important to them. And brands have to recognize that that's a risk that they're either willing to take or not willing to take when you enter into sports. Same exists for a lot of male athletes as well. They all have big platforms. They have big social media followings. You think about an athlete like LeBron James, he's very socially active in terms of his viewpoint. It's just part of what sports has become and what fan expectation is. So how do you align your brand with those types of conversations within sport? You're heavily involved in women's soccer uh, you work with a lot of these athletes uh, as part of Team Ally and some of the creative work that you're doing. How have you managed to align your values with the values of those that you're working with within sports? Yeah, I mean, look, we believe deeply. I think, first of all, you've got to be really authentic in your stated values. They can't be something that doesn't align for what with what your brand stands for or what your brand does or is about. So if you think about us as a financial services company, one of our big stated values is to create economic mobility for people, both our customers and the world in general. So the idea of inclusivity and economic parity is very important in that. And so issues around economic parity, helping people think about how to grow their wealth, uh, have issues around people thinking about the equality of pay, they're very genuine and authentic to our brand. They don't feel disingenuous when we jump in on those conversations. And so we really look for those opportunities. And a big opportunity for us was the 50-50 pledge that we made last year. And no other brand has ever done anything like it. No brand has done it since. And it was this recognition that women's sport was receiving less than 10% of the media coverage in this country and less than 1% of the sponsorship dollars. And so we pledged over a time horizon of five years that we would match dollar for dollar what we spend in men's sports to women's sports. And it was very authentic. It was non-confrontational. It was never a men versus women thing. It was a men and women thing. And I think it recognized what our brand authentically does, which is create that economic mobility. 
It's interesting that you say that because when you present it that that way, it seems so obvious, right? That a that a brand would invest its sponsorship dollars equally across men and women's sports 50-50. But as you say, it's almost a revolutionary act uh, it is. within the marketing world. Tell me a little bit about how that plan came about, why you decided to pursue that, and what's the journey been along the way? Yeah, so it was the it was the um 50th anniversary of Title IX in this country, um, and, and I'm a product of Title IX. I played uh, collegiate soccer at Michigan State University and played soccer my whole entire life. We saw an insight from a study that Deloitte had done that said that 94% of C-suite women in the Fortune 500 played sports at some point in their life, and 54% played at the collegiate level. That was a really interesting insight to us. And then I mentioned the, the inequity from a media standpoint, which was really the second insight. And since it was the 50th anniversary of Title IX, we wanted to do something real. We didn't want to do something that was just going to be a tribute ad or, you know, a, a PR stunt. We wanted to do something to honor 50 years of Title IX. We wanted to do something that could make systemic change. And we wanted to do something that was authentic to our brand. And, um, and honestly, it happened really fast. It was literally a Thursday afternoon. We started talking about this idea of committing equal dollars to men's and women's sports. We knew that ESPN W was having their women's summit around women's sports. Literally the following week, we reached out to ESPN said, could we, could we live stream into the conference and make a big announcement? Julie Foudy, who's a, a 99er from the U.S. Women's National Team and a, and a very well-known figure in women's soccer, interviewed me, and we surprised the crowd and made the announcement. And the reaction was over the top. And then the journey became, how do we do real things? You know, that uh, how are we going to actually make that systemic change? And so the first two big acts of that were, one, we worked really closely with the National Women's Soccer League and CBS to move the championship game for NWSL into primetime. And the second was we made a multi-million dollar media deal with Disney that 95% of our investment went into women's sports. And Disney moved a ton of programming around to put everything from women's lacrosse to women's basketball to women's soccer to women's softball into primetime slots to give fans access to that. And it's been amazing. Yeah, this wasn't just a a kind of a season-long sponsorship of no. women's soccer. This was multi-sport, multi-partner move. Can yeah. I ask you, obviously, you know, you announced this in May 2022, so you're still relatively early within the five-year process. But when you first made that pledge, what percentage of your spending was in men's sports versus women's sports? How big was the change that you were making here? Well, you know, Anna, it's interesting because, uh, you know, you said earlier, you would think every CMO would see the, the wisdom in this. The reality is, myself included, I never stopped and looked at what the Delta was until we came up with this idea. And then we said, all right, how, how are we going to do this? And we looked at our actual media spend and we were spending 90% of our sports media budget in men's sports and 10% in women's. So we fell right into, into that trap. And in one year's time, when we finished this year, 
we will be 60% investment in men's sports and 40% in women's sports. And I will tell you the only, and that's just by being more intentional, optimizing out of things that aren't as productive for us and optimizing into, into more and more women's sports. And I'll tell you the, the biggest barrier for us is simply the unavailability of media. I can't buy enough women's sports media to get to 50, 50. And that's why we put a five-year time horizon on it because we wanted to make that point to the world that you got to change the system. We have to break the vicious cycle or no brand is going to be able to do this. Yeah. So I guess that's throwing down the gauntlet to all of the media owners out there who work in sports is the inventory has got to be there for brands like yours to buy it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I talk about the vicious cycle all the time and, um, a lot of the onus sits with legacy media platforms to to really change that um, availability of media to move more women's sports into prime time slots to ensure that the audiences are there or else the brands will never come. And I'll give you an example. Um, when we moved with CBS and NWSL, the championship game into prime time, we saw a 700% improvement in ratings, almost a million viewers from the year previously when the game was at noon, uh, when we moved it into prime time and it was up against the world series that night and a pretty big college football rivalry. So you see that the numbers are there. The women's world cup did tremendous. The women's final four, uh, in NCAA had tremendous ratings outperformed the men's final four. The appetite is rabid. The WNBA championship game a couple of weeks ago, peaked at 1.5 million viewers. That's a heck of a lot of people watching women's sports. Yeah, that's a really amazing figure. And I think we've seen with the Women's Football World Cup uh, in the past few months, stadiums selling out for these teams, the demand is there. And it's not necessarily an audience that you would necessarily be reaching in men's sports. Right. And you know what the thing is? There are a lot of men that consume women's sports. If you look at a lot of the data People are just sports fans. You know, you, you look at the numbers that the um, women's basketball, the college women's basketball Final Four did, 57% of the viewers were men. So you had a disproportionate share of men that were actually watching the women's game. And when I went to that Liberty's Aces game a couple of weeks ago, the championship game, I intentionally looked around the crowd. I would bet you 60% of the people that were in the stands were men. So, you know, my, my dream is we get to a point in time where we just call it sports. We don't bifurcate it by women's sports and men's sports. And you get to equal pay, equal play, equal access, equal viewership. You know, there's a lot of change that needs to happen, but there's a lot of brands, us, State Farm, Google, Nike. There are a lot of people doing the work and um, we're, we're going to make it happen. You've mentioned that obviously some of your media investments in that space, but you, are you working across any other channels in the sponsorship space and how are you continuing to activate that media spend across, for example, in stadium activations or fan zones? Are you working on anything like that? 
Yeah, so we have a pretty big sports portfolio. Um, we do a lot in in NASCAR and racing, obviously soccer. Um, we're the official league sponsor of the National Women's Soccer League. We're on the uh, the shoulder of every one of the kits. We do a ton of activation with the NWSL. So whether it's in stadium activation, whether it's sponsorship of of the draft, whether it's sponsorship of the championship game, um, we're looking at some. Uh, team relationships right now in the WNBA and and how we can enter into that space. We have a sponsorship with the ACC, which is the um, athletic uh, conference um, for uh, uh, the um, uh, colleges um, here in um, in in America and um, have big sponsorships across ACC activate at all of the ACC games. So it's a pretty broad sponsorship and footprint. And then of course, you mentioned a little bit earlier team ally, which was really our objective of putting dollars directly into athletes pockets. And then lastly, um, emerging media platforms that are women owned and women run. So things like just women's sports, and the gist and goal sports that dedicate their coverage to women athletes, women events, women sports, and doing quite a bit with them as a way to provide more access to women's sports as well. There's so much success you've had in this space. I'm interested in how you're actually quantifying that and measuring that. Is it a DEI metric that you're using? Is it a traditional sponsorship performance metric in the way that brands would traditionally think about that? Is it a mixture of both? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, look, we think about it in terms of how are we moving enterprise KPIs? And since we made the 50-50 pledge, our awareness is at the highest level it's ever been in our company history. Our consideration, trust, likability, and logo recognition are all at historic highs. 65% of everybody that's coming to our storefront is female. And we're seeing just the anecdotal uh, conversation. And we're also seeing significant increase in earned media. And then we measure brand sentiment in earned media, and we're seeing historic highs there as well. So it's less about a DE&I metric. You know, we think about these things as how do they impact the overall performance of the Ally brand and what we're doing to add value and contribute to the growth of the com- of the company. And by all measures, this thing has been one of the most uh, major accelerants we've ever conceived of and launched. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned through this process in terms of overcoming some of those challenges? And what advice would you give to other brands who have perhaps heard the story that we've been talking about and gone, I'm really seeing the opportunity here? How how would you advise that they pitch that to their board, that they get that investment and that they roll out something that is equally as impressive? I mean, first of all, um, I would say make sure it's authentic to your brand and authentic to what you stand for. Secondly, you can't ever make this, a, like I said, a men versus women thing. This has to be a men and women thing. So this was never about competing with men's sports or denigrating men's sports or any of those kinds of things, because I am a big believer that men's sports is hugely important um, for brands and we continue to support them. Um, so you can't, you can't make it divisive in any way. Um, I think the third area is you you have to demonstrate the value. And and the only way you can really demonstrate the value is to create the systemic change. I actually got a 
question from one of our board members who said to me, you know, you must be paying crazy CPMs for women's sports. And the answer was no, quite the opposite. Because we have made systemic change and we have moved, worked with the platforms to move a lot of the women's sports into prime slots, the CPMs are in line with other CPMs that we pay for. So I think it's around continuing to tell the narrative, uh, educating and advising so that everybody understands the true value and the true output of what you're doing. And then lastly, I would say, and, and this is hugely important, you have to work with the platforms. You have to work with the partners. You can't go and point a finger at them and say, you've been doing this all wrong and what's wrong with you and why do you, you know, why don't you like women's sports and call them out and shame them? You know, I take Disney as a great example. I sat with Rita Farrow and we we talked about what we were trying to do and why it was important to us and what they could do to help and how we could work together. And we put something together that was a true partnership that we were really proud of. And Disney's proud of it. We're proud of it. Rita talks about it publicly a lot. I talk about it publicly a lot. It was never combative and it never would have happened if it was combative. And so I think that's a really important lesson. You mentioned um, this a little bit earlier in our discussion, but obviously in today's world, there is a really high degree of polarization and political pushback from some parts of society on diversity, equity and inclusion, on ESG. You mentioned some of the backlash against the US, uh, US Women's National Team with regards to their pay equity deal. Uh, that's probably not something that they've courted. How do you think that this degree of polarization and politicization has impacted how marketers look at the opportunity of purpose-driven campaigns. This is a topic that purpose has been a huge topic in the industry over the last five years, but definitely what we're hearing at Walk is that CMOs are a little bit uh, perhaps jittery about pushing into these spaces given the polarization at the moment. What's your view on that? Jittery is uh, definitely one word for it. I'd say scared to death is probably probably more um, more of it. I mean, I think we've all watched other brands, uh, you know, have massive uh, issues that they've faced over the course of this year. Things that we've um, probably never would have imagined would have happened, and and so yeah, it's it is scary. Um, and traversing it, especially in a political year for for the U.S., you know, we'll have a presidential election next year, and I think it will become an even more prominent concern. I like the way that we're thinking about it, and and most uh, of my friends that are CMOS that that get together and talk about it is one it has to be aligned to your stated values. So, you know, you can't just all of a sudden state a new value and expect people to to think about your brand as having authenticity. So for us, it's been really clear. We've always had stated values around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've always had stated values around this idea that inclusivity is better for business. And we've always had a stated va value around um, this idea of economic mobility. So when we do things in that space, it's really authentic. I think two is you know, there was a point in time where consumers were demanding that brands filled in the void where they felt like government was failing 
If you look at the most recent Edelman studies and other tr- other studies, that's not the case right now. Uh, consumers are are tiring out of of that, and they want brands to to do what they want brands to do, not to take on big political issues. And so, I think staying out of politics is probably a really good. Um, lesson for a lot of brands. And third, I think when you do something, stick with it. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to take a stand on something, if you're going to, if you're going to make a pledge or you're going to stand for something, if you start to get some backlash, you can't fold and you can't bail and you can't go run and hide under the table. You, you made it stick with it. Deeds, not words. And I think that's where other brands have, have failed in really significant ways, which just ended up making everybody mad. Yeah. And do you think that those type of examples of it going so poorly make the industry risk averse? Because as you say, you know, examples like women's pay equity, not an inherently political uh, position for most people, but a lot of the backlash against this has been completely unexpected. Yeah. Do you think that's just nature of the way things are right now? And, or is this just how it's going to be for the interim? Yeah. Look, I think you've got to expect as a marketer right now that when you wade into any DE&I issue at all, you're going to get some compendium of backlash. And what you have to decide as a brand is what is your risk tolerance and at what level of backlash. And that's just the reality of the world that we're living in today. You have to take reasonable risks that make sense and are authentic. We can't all just step away from the table and say, we're not going to do this anymore. That's not right. And that's not, you know, that, that again, that is just um, flipping a script. I mean, you saw when George Floyd was murdered in this country, every brand came out and made a statement, made right. some kind of a pledge, spent a bunch of money. You know, you go talk to a lot of these Black-owned media platforms right now, they, they'll they tell you that two years ago, they couldn't catch all the dollars that were being thrown at them. Now, they're hearing a lot of crickets. And that's not right. As brands, we cannot flip-flop that much. And so, again, it's having a smart strategy. It's having an authentic plan. It's doing what you say you were going to do. And it's having the right uh, risk tolerance and expectation that, there are always going to be things you're going to get noise on. The question is, how much stomach do you have for what level of noise? Interesting. Have you ever encountered pushback on any of your own marketing work or the choice of causes that you align with? Because you've yeah. been, as a brand, very outspoken in, in the causes that you've aligned with over the years. What's your experience been of that? Perhaps, yeah. you know, five years ago versus now. Look, even the women's 50-50 pledge, um, when we made that pledge, we had a number of um, customers, mostly male customers, that wrote to us and said things like, I'm going to go ahead and let you sponsor women's sports, but when you start using words like equity and inclusion, that's where I get really mad and I'm going to pull all my money out of Ally. So uh, again, you know, you have to decide as a company, like, are those the kind of customers that we want? This is such a non-confrontational, no-brainer issue that just makes the entire world a better place. How would investing equally in men's and women's sports 
hurt or take away from anybody. It doesn't. It just makes the world a better place. And so again, it's about having the risk tolerance for it. Um, you know, there are lightning rod issues, right? You know, right now, anything having to do with transgender conversation is a lightning rod issue. And, you know, again, brands have to understand that and have to traverse what is an acceptable level of risk for their company. So for us, I think it's just staying out of the political, being true to the values, understanding we're going to get some pushback, having a great CEO that understands that sometimes as a company that has very strong and, and stated values and is willing to do something about those values, that, that there are going to be times where your brand could face some fire but not doing anything that would be unreasonable and not doing anything that's going to do harm. You know, we've kind of got this do no harm mentality. That doesn't mean being vanilla, but it also means not getting so far out on one side or the other that, um, that it doesn't make sense for our brand. Some really good advice there. I mean, we could talk about that all day, but I do want to jump into generative AI, which is one of the really big topics that we're talking about in Marketers Toolkit this year. It's a buzzword that's taken the industry by storm over the last 18 months, and over half, so 58% of respondents to our Marketers Toolkit survey, describe themselves as, quote, cautiously progressive uh, <laughs> on generative AI. So perhaps hedging their bets a little bit there. What's your view? We love our buzzwords in marketing, don't we? We sure last, do. Last year, if you and I were having a chat, we'd be talking about metaverse. Now nobody's talking about metaverse, right? Um, so look, we've got an amazing chief technology officer who is a good partner and friend of mine, Satish, and he has been exceptionally progressive in terms of leading the charge around uh, generative AI at Ally um, and and. Uh, we have been attached at the hip around the idea of, as a digital financial services company, we've got to be fairly leading edge when it comes to AI. Right. And, and so we are. And um, we did a, a big pilot across my team earlier this year. We had about 45 people that participated in the pilot. We used AI for everything from creating LinkedIn posts to writing blog content to doing operational tasks to helping name new products or programs and just really tested it across the spectrum. And we saw incredible use cases across that, uh, across that pilot, um, it, you know, upwards of 85% more efficient, um, you know, saved us a ton of time on, on everyday tasks, a lot of really good content. Interestingly, one of the things that we, uh, that we wrote, we had AI, right. We put up on a wall, we had everybody try and pick what was written by the humor human and what was written by AI and, and everybody had the wrong, the wrong pick. So, you know, look, I think for us, we've been charging full steam ahead. We're really excited about what AI can do for our brand, what AI can do for our customer experience, what AI can do for us as a marketing organization to make us bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, and to make sure that we do it in a way that is, um, recognizes the importance of human capital and human creative talent. With that in mind, how do you expect AI and all of those opportunities that you talked about to change the shape of your team's skill requirements, both internally, but also from the agency partners that you work with? I would be lying if I didn't say that 
there will be certain functions that will be replaced by AI. And I think that we'll have to be really realistic about, you know, how many writers do you need uh, writing content versus AI that can crank it out? Or operationally, are there things that AI can do that you no longer need to staff a bunch of humans against? That said, I think the flip side of the coin is then how do you make sure that AI's got human supervision, that has human input, that has the right people with a different skill set guiding it? And so I think that like anything else, it's going to create new opportunity. It's going to create new skill sets. It's going to create new efficiency, and it's going to allow us to, to do things faster and better. Um, but there will always be a human touch that's going to be involved in that. And so it's just another evolution of where we're all going to need to go in this, in this industry of marketing and advertising. Do you have any concerns about the guardrails around AI? We hear a lot about the opportunities, but we're also seeing rampant misinformation, brand safety issues, uh, perhaps heightening some of those concerns that marketers were having about the platforms already and the role of that in their information ecosystem. How do you feel about that? Yeah, of course. Look, we're in we're kind of in early stages of AI and, and there's going to be a lot of good things that come from it. There's going to be a lot of bad things that come from it. And, you know, I would, I, I think anybody would be disingenuous if they said that they don't have significant concerns about what it's going to do on a lot of different fronts, misinformation, uh, hallucinations, um, you know, impact to human capital, you know, just simple things. I do a lot of college lecturing and college visits and, you know, universities are struggling with, is it against the rules for students to have AI write a paper? What's that going to do long-term to learning agendas and to knowledge bases and the amount of things that, that people know how to do as human beings? Yeah, of course. I've got concerns about all of those things, but I also think it's going to be not too dissimilar to the internet where we're just going to figure out a new way forward and we'll adopt and adapt to it. The only way is forward, right? Yeah. It ain't, we ain't going backwards, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, what are some of the big questions that the next generation on those college campuses are asking you about marketing? Yeah, well, so number one question that I get from everybody is, will AI replace me and will I have a job? <laughs> so I hear that ubiquitously regardless of where I go. I think there's a lot of fear and a lot of trepidation. And my advice is always don't be afraid of it. Embrace it and figure out how to get really good at it and make your skill set invaluable. I think the other big thing that I hear from, from a lot of students, and actually I was just up at Michigan State last week doing a full day of mentoring um, a lot of the questions were around this macroeconomic environment, a lot of fear and concern about um, the job market. Um, second area is, is really around people, younger people being overwhelmed with the amount of choices that they have in advertising and marketing and media and not really knowing like what's for me and how do I experience all those things to understand, do I want to work at a social media platform? Do I want to work at a media agency? Do or I want increasingly to increasingly in consulting? Yeah, exactly. And so that's another, that's another big question that, um, that I always hear. And then a lot around remote work and the impact of that, the benefits of being in person versus being remote. I mean, it's, that is a raging debate that is still um, really, really rampant and I, I don't think has sorted itself out. And I don't think a lot of young people that are coming out of college know how to, how to even think about that. 
<laughs> well, we'll see how that how that goes. That's a great place to leave it. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Walk podcast today and all of the amazing insights and lessons you've been able to share. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for the CMO Conversation as part of Walk Marketers Toolkit. If you've enjoyed the series so far, be sure to follow the Walk podcast to stay up to date with all things Marketers Toolkit and for upcoming episodes on topics in the wider world of marketing effectiveness. Have a great week.